what I'm going to speak on tonight is protecting yourselves, equipping yourselves with the gospel, and protecting yourselves with the gospel. And I'm going to have uh, I'm going to use Ephesians six as a means to back it up. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. If you guys want to turn to Ephesians six, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight, Lord, and for the opportunity to serve you, Lord. I pray that I would just be a mere vessel that you would use, Lord, to proclaim your word, Father. Please, if anything comes out of my mouth, Lord, um, that is not aligning with your word, I pray that um, it would just pass right through the, uh, the audience's mind, Father, and that they would only hold uh, fast, hold firm to what was uh, proclaimed uh, through your word. That's truth, Father. So, um, Please, Lord, I need your help, Father. Please guide me in my speech and give me clarity. It's in your precious name, precious son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, all right. We're going to start off at Ephesians 6, verse 10. And the title of this message is The Gospel Armor. The Gospel Armor. I'm going to start off by reading. Verse 10. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's read through the uh, NASB right there. Um, I just want to, uh, to highlight two of my points tonight. Uh, point one is going to be recognizing the enemy. And point two is trying to hold on to my paper. Recon- recognizing the remedy. The enemy and then the remedy. So let me, let, me, uh, let me point out and illustrate to you guys first the enemy. Uh, right here, you know, Paul lists a very uh, a myriad of foes, of adversaries. The most prominent one is Satan himself, the devil. Um, I don't know if Tyler's here right now, but he did a wonderful message on Ezekiel 28, uh, and he really did that that passage justice. He explained the devil, who he is, what his mission is. So I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but I just want to tell you guys that the devil is real. Um, he is not a fictional foe. He is not uh, some fantastical character that we make up in our minds. Uh, he really is out there to tear up our faith, to dismantle our walk with God, and to pretty much disrupt our communion with God. And so I just want to point that out. And he is a, a great accuser, a great tempter, a liar. Um, and I don't know if some of you out there are, are being tempted or accused by Satan uh, or being even slaughtered by Satan in your faith. But uh, stay tuned because I'm going to give the remedy uh, in the following verses. Um, also just wanted to point out that, uh, that there is a, uh, an immense spiritual warfare. Again, Tyler touched on that too. Um, it, there's a spiritual warfare going on. There's spiritual warfare going on right now as I'm preaching. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it's not no Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings battle going on. It's, it's for real struggle with our spirit. Um, and, uh, and I just wanted to point that out. If, again, if you guys are, you know, experiencing spiritual warfare, again, the remedy is coming up. So we have our first enemy, the second enemy. There's two enemies. Second enemy isn't really touched on in this passage, though. The second enemy, um, is actually ourselves. We could be our own worst enemy. Uh, 
we could affect our walk in so many ways. And I think the most prominent one that I've seen lately um, is that a lot of us fall into this thing called legalism. And a lot of my precious brothers that I cherish so much fell into legalism. And what they have done is they've lost sight of the cross. They've lost sight of the gospel. And uh, they're replacing faith in Christ with obedience and performance and righteous acts so that um, they wake up every morning like, what can I do for God? What can I do for God today? Instead of, instead of focusing in on and dwelling upon what has God done for you through Jesus. So if you've, if you've lost sight of the gospel and you're, you're, you're pretty much um, focusing in on your performance and your obedience and focusing on what you can do for God... I say stop, protect yourself, guard yourself up, gird yourself up um, with what I'm going to talk about later in uh, this, this devotion and, um, and focus in on the cross because that's the only thing that brings you close to God is focusing in on the gospel. Um, so we really need to be protected against ourselves, our own fleshly uh, nature, our former selves that creep in every once in a while. Um, and we need to be uh, you know, defended against and protected against the devil. And we're going to use the gospel as means of defense. So I'm going to go ahead and, and read further on in verse 13. It says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist an evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Family, I keep saying protecting yourself with the gospel. I I titled this message, The Gospel Armor. Um, We just read over a complete set of of armor that Paul had just listed right now. Um, And you may be thinking, you know, how does this fit in? How does the gospel fit in to the the pieces of armor, to the equipment that that Paul is describing here? Um, Well, family, if you look at it, it's very interesting. If you look at each piece of armor in particular, individually, you will notice that each piece... Is a, is a different gospel uh, truth, is a gospel quality, okay? So I'll go through each piece with you. Girded with truth, breastplate of righteousness, or translated literally from the Greek, justification, gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, where we initially find the gospel, um, is in the Word of God. So... In essence, this armor right here is the gospel. This armor right here is the gospel. We need to be equipped with this armor right here as means of defense against what I have formerly said, against Satan, against temptation, against sin, against ourselves, against legalism. And so how, uh, it's also, it's also um, very interesting to note how, how, uh, how Paul uses this. He says, put on the full armor of God, or take up the full armor of God. Now, just by looking at the way that this is, uh, this is, this is written right here, the verbiage, put on and take up, that automatically assumes, automatically assumes that you don't, not, you don't, you don't naturally wake up every morning already equipped 
with this armor, already equipped with the gospel armor. That means you have to physically, emotionally, mentally uh, put on and equip yourself with this gospel armor. Um, I was going to expound on something else, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to keep it, keep going on. But yes, we have to, you know, we have to physically and emotionally and mentally prepare our minds and dwell and get a firm grasp on the gospel and, and on a gospel armor. Now, how can we do this? Do we, do we, do we really have, you know, a, a set of, of, of gospel armor that, you know, we could just put on real quick? Um, no, Paul, of course, was using it as a metaphor. Um, so the most applicable way I could tell you to put this on is to preach it to yourself every single day. Preach it to yourself throughout the rest of your whole Christian experience here on earth. Preach it to yourself. It is the only thing, again, that keeps us fully communed with God. And Satan knows how, how, um, how significant this is, how important this is in our life that we remain close to the gospel and he is going to try to come in between it as much as possible. So preach it to yourself every single day. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I preach it to myself. My favorite place to preach it to myself is in a shower. I don't know why you guys may have somewhere else, you know, in a car, wherever. But my, my, uh, my, my, my famous place, my favorite place is in the shower and I just... I, I pick apart the gospel in various gospel truths, and um, you know I'll focus in on well using this as an example. Breastplate of righteousness, imputed righteousness, focusing in on dwelling on the fact that that Christ came down and died a substitutionary lamb, and bore our our unrighteousness and our wretchedness and our filth, our filthy rags and our sin. He bore that, and, and, and as a substitute, he gave us his righteousness, his imputed righteousness. So I just dwell on that, and I'm just so, I'm so comforted, and I'm so uh, encouraged by that because of the great work that was done for me on the cross. And, I, and it, it gives me uh, just a mind that is fully consumed with the gospel, and I'm, I'm protected. I, I don't feel as easily susceptible to sin. I don't fall under temptation as much, and... and I mean, it's just, I think it's the best defense against ourselves and the enemy, the great tempters. And so another example would be, you know, the helmet of salvation. We're saved. For those of us in here who are Christians, we are saved. Um, don't ever let the enemy, you know, you know, doubt in any way. Don't ever let us doubt in any way uh, that we're not saved. And so I focus in on that salvation. You know, what, what did the cross do for me? How, how was it accomplished on the cross? Uh, the, the, the mercies and the grace of God, and so I take great encouragement in that. Um, a lot of a lot of um, many Christians think that, and, and I myself think that uh, the gospel and its purpose was already fulfilled in our conversion and our, and salvation, and it has no more meaning. You know, they just throw it away, and the only time they bring it out is when they want to proclaim it to someone else. How about proclaiming it to yourself every day? How about you know equipping yourself with the gospel? Every single day. Its meaning is lifelong. We use it every single day as our means of defense. And it provides so much other things. But I just I can't do this topic justice um, with the time that I have. But it does provide protection. Um, so, yeah, be experts in the gospel and have a very, very firm grasp on the gospel. Let me read to you guys uh, just a couple things and I'll close it right here. C.J. Mahaney says... 
if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and only the gospel ought to be. Never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond. Its depth man will never exhaust. And, um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. So we have the enemy, which is ourselves, um, which, you know, we could doubt uh, so many things. that we, we could fall into legalism and, and forget about the work of the cross and forget about... Um, what he's done for us and be more focused on what we can do for God. Uh, we don't want that. And, and, and then the enemy, which is a, a great tempter and a great liar. Um, and so we have the enemy, then we have the remedy to equip ourselves with the gospel armor, to equip ourselves with the gospel each and every day. Um, so stay firmly rooted in it. And as my prayer to end this, I'm just going to uh, give a little verse of a hymn that, uh, that I really admire that, fits in perfectly with this and i'll close out right here stand up stand up for jesus stand in his strength alone the arm of flesh will fail you you dare ye dare not trust your own put on the gospel armor each piece put on with prayer where duty calls or danger be never wanting there praise god guys that's such a great reminder to me i mean the gospel preaching to yourself we go through we go through the same things every day i mean i go through sin you go through sin so we're in this together but yet sometimes we forget that we must preach to ourselves we must we must tell ourselves hey hey what are you doing when we're sinning we we got to say hey what are you doing brian why, why, are you, why are you trying to do this for? Why are you looking at this? Why are you doing that? Why are you talking about that person for? And yet, so many times these things happen, but yet we're not telling ourselves anything. We're just, we're just like sheep. We're just falling over the cliff and just going for it, head first. We're just diving into it. And so we, we need to remind ourselves about this. And I was reminded in Psalm 91, verse 4, it says, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And it's true. His truth shall be, shall be our shield. What's his truth? This is his truth. The gospel, like, uh, like Donovan was talking about. This is his truth. And this is going to be our shield. And that's why I love working at Harvest. We're always reading. We're always doing our devos in the morning. And, and I, get my, I get my devos there. And I get my praying on the way to work and all these things. And it's amazing. It's awesome that I get to work at a place where we actually set aside time. And we actually get to read a passage of the scriptures. And then we get to apply it to ourselves. Right now, we just got done talking about David's life, and now we're on to Solomon's life. And it's wonderful. And my question to you now is, do you do that? Do you read every single day in your devotional life? I'm not talking about, oh, one little scripture and that's it. I'm talking about you're actually reading. You're actually comprehending. You're studying the Word. You're understanding what the Word is speaking to you about. Not, oh, I'm reading this, I fly by the scriptures, and I'm done. 
you're not learning anything. You've, you've disregarded the word of God right there. All you did was you just read it. It's just like me in high school. I used to just skim through the, the, the textbooks. I would just glance over it, read through it. I'm done. I get to go play. That's it. Is that how we treat the word of God? Do we just skim through it, glance over it, and then, yay, I get to go and fellowship, man, because I come to church just to fellowship. Are we there because we actually love God and we want to know him more intimately and we want to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us? What's your motive? Are you grateful for the gospel? I hope so because if you're not, it means nothing to you. And so, man, take heed to those words. Man, be in the word. Be in the word. Preach it to yourself. Be in the word. Get ready for those fiery darts. I was actually in a I was actually talking to Pastor Steve Wilburn yesterday and it was sweet. He he mentioned that. He said, "Man, you're going to go through temptations in life, you know? And and the Satan's just going to come out and shooting these darts at you all the time." And I'm, and I'm just like, "Man, that's true. He is." And so we must guard ourselves. We must gird up our minds. We must read the word. And protect ourselves from these darts, from Satan's attack on us. Amen? Alrighty. Well, enough said. Another good friend of mine. Man, I just have so many good friends, huh? But, uh, man, Alfredo's going to bring us the word tonight. And, man, he is just, he's come a, such a long way. He, he knows the word so well. And I'm, like, so impressed with what he knows, like, He's like a sponge. He can, soak in, he can soak in the word and just recite the word to you and, and figure out, oh, like if I ask him the question, okay, so oh, hey, where, where can I find like the Holy Spirit? He can just name it off like that. And it's, and it's amazing how much, is, how much is embedded into his mind. And so he's going to teach us through the, um, through the book of Daniel, actually the whole entire book, right? Yep. That's right. That's what Josh told me. But he's going to teach throughout he's going to teach the whole book of Daniel. And so, man, get ready for some info, get ready for some application and gird your mind up right now. And as he's coming forward, let me pray for him and for us as well. Father, thank you so much for um just this Bible study that I get to be a part of and Lord, I pray right now for um Alfredo that you would First of all, um, rid him, rid him of his sin. Um, help him to be just pure and holy before you, before he steps on this microphone. That he would um, apply your spirit upon him. The blood of Christ would flow through him, and that he would preach nothing but your truth, your gospel, and your message, Lord. And so I pray for us that you would open up our ears and our hearts and that you would ready us for the information and for the transformation um, of your word in our hearts. So, Father, please bless this place and we pray that um, you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, Alfredo. Um, for the guys that are standing in the back, there's some room if you want to... Just sit back in that hallway if you don't want to sit down. I'm going to be preaching through the entire book, so I'd get comfy if I were you. I'm kidding. I'm not teaching the entire book, as Josh told Fry. I'm going to give you a simple overview of Daniel, and we're going to focus in on Daniel 6. 
and see what the Lord has to say. What a great word for my friend. Many of you guys don't know uh, Donovan and my relation to him. I've actually known him since I was two. And uh, before I was a Christian, he was. He was the last guy I would have thought would have become a Christian. And yet his influence on me was, it was, I can't even begin to describe it. Grew up in a Christian school. I didn't have Christian friends um, because we were all Christians at the Christian school. Um, So seeing him, seeing his life, and then once I became a Christian, being able to fellowship him, fellowship with him, it was it was an extreme blessing. So I'm so thankful for him. Um, but on my Bible, I have here written John 17:17. 17, 17. It says, "Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth." And so every day I try to apply that. When I open up this word, I believe that God is going to sanctify me through me reading it. You guys understand that? He also said, "Is in John chapter eight." You shall know the truth, and it shall what? So there's two things. You're being liberated from yourself and from your sinful nature, and you're being sanctified by the Word of God. And that's what I am asking would happen tonight. And so let's go before our King. Amen? Uh, Fathers, we join together. It's hot, and uh, we're packed in this room, but we're so thankful, uh, God, that you have brought us here. And, Lord, I ask that you would fall down in this place in an incredible way. Holy Spirit, would you join us, and would you illuminate this text to us? We have a lot to cover. And so I just ask for your grace, Lord, during this time. And as I preach and teach um, Christ, I ask that you would be glorified and your people would be sanctified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, you're a part of this study. We teach every seventh chapter in the book of Daniel. We'll be in here tonight. It's our first and only night in the book, so Josh has asked me to give a little overview of the entire book. So that's what I'm going to do. The book of Daniel, it's the last major prophet, and kind of what he does is bridge the connection between all the other major prophets, and it ends with him. So the other prophets are prophesying about the exile that would take place when they would go into Babylonian captivity. And so as the book of Daniel opens, second verse, we're told that, King Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar, is taken over, and they're now all in captivity. So the first six chapters is basically Daniel narrating the different kings who come in and take over, and they're dethroned, they come in and take over, new king. The last six are basically focused on Daniel's prophecies. You have Daniel 7, he explains the rising of the kingdoms of the world, and how would they fall. Daniel chapter 2, he says he sets kings up and he sets them down. It is God who is sovereign over the kingdoms. And he explains in the, end, the last part of Daniel 7 that there will be one kingdom that will reign forever, and that is Christ. That is the Messiah. And that's who he prophesies in the end. Chapter uh, 9, he speaks of the 70 weeks, prophe- 70 weeks prophecy. Many of you guys are probably familiar with that. Uh, from Daniel's era to the era of the Messiah, Christ, it's a timetable that we're given and when he's going to come. So then in 10 and 11 and 12, it focuses on the repentance of Israel, the humiliation of Israel, And yet God's faithfulness to forgive his people. They repent and he forgives them. He restores them. He redeems them. He delivers them. And so 10 through 12, you can read it for yourself. It's a great book. Focuses a lot on eschatology. So don't be afraid to get some reference stuff. But it's a great book. Uh, Tonight we'll be in six. End time stuff. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Jay. I, I forget that I'm talking. I know. Eschatology, end times. Uh, So turn to Daniel chapter 6. We'll be in there tonight. Now to kind of give some context of what's going on, let me remind you what happened in Daniel chapter 1. Like I said, Babylonian captivity. 
Nebuchadnezzar takes over. He comes in. Now they're in captivity. And so what he wants to do is kind of bring his culture into the Jewish people. So he exiles Jewish men, young men like Daniel and like his friends and others to be cultured with Babylonian stuff. So they learn their culture, they eat their food and whatnot. First thing we see Daniel do is reject it. He says, no, we don't want your delicacies. Give us vegetables and water. We will drink that and eat that for a week, and we'll see who comes out on top. And so what happens? They turn down those delicacies. They're wiser. They're more fit. They're more suitable to serve the king. And so that's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar likes them. He's brought into favor. On top of that, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Many of you guys are familiar with this. So he calls all the wise men of the land to come and interpret his dream. But what happens? None of them know it. The magicians, the sorcerers, none of them can interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, except for Daniel. So King Nebi decides that he's going to kill all these guys. He's frustrated. He wants the interpretation of his dream. He can't get it. Daniel says, no, don't kill him. I serve the God of heaven. I serve the God who interprets dreams. He's given me your interpretation, and I will tell it to you. So he explains interpretation. He kind of saves those men from being killed, and Nebuchadnezzar's pleased. In chapter 3, many of you guys are familiar with the story. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends, they refuse to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar makes in his own honor. He says, you've got to bow down, you've got to worship this, or you're going in the fiery furnace. And those three refuse. They say, we serve the God of heaven, the true and living God. So they go in the fiery furnace. And we're told there that they say they saw a fourth person in the fiery furnace, and this angelic being shone like the Son of God. And so the principle there is that Christ is there standing in the fire with you. That's some of the great principles that you learn there. And so in four, Nebuchadnezzar also has another dream who calls to interpret it, which is Daniel. He interprets it. And this time it's kind of some bad news. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you've had a great kingdom, yet you've rejected God. So as your judgment, you're going to be cast out. You're going to go crazy and you're going to wander in the land. You're going to roam with animals and you're going to chew the cud is what scripture says. And that's exactly what happens. Nebi goes crazy, he's cast out, he chews the cud, and he lives with the animals. And one interesting thing that we see is that he actually shows signs of repentance. He turns towards God because of what happened. And so in chapter 5, almost there, Belshazzar comes in, he takes over, and he's another pagan king, doesn't follow after God, throws wild parties. And so an angel comes down and writes the writing on the wall. You guys are familiar with this. So who are we going to call to interpret the dream? Daniel. Daniel comes in and interprets it. He says, listen, your time is up. Uh, you will come to an end, and that end is now. And at that moment, the armies of who? King Darius comes in, destroys them all, and now he is in control. And that's exactly where we open right here in Daniel 6. King Darius is in control. And so his job is to now find men that can lead his nation. So he needs trustworthy men. So why else would you not pick? Daniel, he selects Daniel. And I love this, because Daniel's name means what? Anybody know? God is my judge. Dan, translated in the Hebrew, means judge. The E sound is my. The L, many of you guys are familiar with, in Hebrew is God. God, my judge. Better translated, God is my judge. So Daniel's thought process is, God, you are my judge, not the kings. So to you, I will give my account. I don't care what they say. It's what you think, God. You're my judge. And you see that constantly lived out in his life. He's concerned with only what God is thinking, what God is concerned about, and what God is doing. That is Daniel's focus. And you see that throughout this entire book. It's great. 
And so now in chapter 6, verse 1, Darius has selected Daniel, of course. Why not? He's trustworthy to be one of his three main governors. So let's pick up and read. Started in chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give an account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of honor. You can trust him. He was honest. He's concerned about the nation. So, of course, Daniel, or I'm sorry, Darius is going to really respect him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the other governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Like I said, he was a man of integrity. You couldn't find a single thing to put on him. Completely blameless in the, eye of the, in the eyes of the people. And that's what happens. If you're blameless in the eyes of God, of course you will be blameless in the eyes of people. And so verse 5, Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless, listen now, we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king, And said thus to him, King Darius, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute statute, and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Finally, verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the written decree. So here's a faithful man of God, Daniel, hated by his peers, because a a man of integrity will not let corruption take place, and they're in charge of the finances, they're in charge of the taxation of the people. So the other governors can't get what they want. They can't feed their own desire to be rich. And so they want to get rid of him. And so they devised this plan to write a law against this man, knowing that he's going to remain faithful to God. Think about this now. Daniel's faithfulness to God was seen by so many people that the only way they can get him on anything was to write a law against it, knowing that he would remain faithful. That's crazy. That is just crazy. The only way we can get him is if we get him to challenge his loyalty to his God. That's nuts. His prayer life was so known, they knew they would get him there. And think about this for a second. Because for some reasons, Christians have, it, Christians have it in their head that prayer is for pastors, or that prayer is for priests, or for some crazy bald monk up in the hills. That's not the case at all. Look at the life of Daniel. He's in charge of kingdoms here. He's in charge of entire nation, and yet prayer is still a priority in his life. And our excuse is, I'm busy today, I got this, I mean, I'm in charge of a big company, I got to work at Vans, I got to work in the mall. Try Daniel's job, being over an entire nation, and yet prayer was a priority for him. He didn't budge. He didn't budge, so they knew they would get him here. And this was so convicting to me, because early as a young Christian, I was doing the church thing, and I thought it was good, I was going to... Bible studies every stinking day. I married the church, uh, yet I had no private time, no communion with God. 
And a good brother of mine, he works at the church. His name is Daniel Hooper. I'll give him credit for this. He said, the first face you should see every morning is the face of God. Before you see any other face, you seek the face of God. And that was like revolutionary to me at the time. It was huge because I didn't have private time with God. I didn't know what that means to open your word and to get on your face and to let God speak to you. And look at the life of Daniel. He's in charge of so much, and prayer is a priority to him. And so King Darius doesn't know what he's just signed. In signing the decree, he signed Daniel's life away. He was blinded by his own pride and blinded by his own sin. He had no idea what these other satraps were doing. But look at the response. Verse 10, what we're going to read next, is like the climax, I think, of this entire chapter. It's where everything goes down. It sets the stage for the rest of the chapter, and it even explains in more light the first nine. Because look at his response. Verse 10, look there with me now. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So what's his response? You cannot pray or petition to any other God or man except for Darius. Daniel goes, okay, that's fine. He goes home and petitions to God. Are you kidding me? I've titled this message, Obedience to God Equals Defiance to the World. That's that's what was standing out in my mind right now. Obedience to God equals defiance to the world. Now, some of you might be thinking, I can obey God and not be defiant. That might be the case. But what I'm going to explain out of this next verse comes straight from the text. He's pretty defiant in the things he does. If you're taking note, I got six things you need to know out of this passage. So listen clearly. Number one, Daniel knew what he was doing when he went home and prayed. He knew that the decree was signed. Look at the verse. Now, when Daniel knew that the the writing was signed, he went home and he prayed. He knows exactly what he's doing when he's going home. He is defying the law of the world at that time. The law of the kingdom. And yet he prays anyway. Think about this for a minute, though. The life of Daniel is incredibly bright. Don't forget his position. Back in verse 2 or 3, he's told, I'm sorry, that we're told that the king is thinking of stepping him up another level. He's that well-liked in the eyes of the king. He's got a bright future ahead of him. And he knows what's at stake when he bows his knees to the Lord. He knows the consequences of his prayer at that time, and yet he doesn't care. God, I give an account to you and you alone. What does his name mean? God is my judge. Not the kings of this world, not the law of men. God is my judge. He knew exactly what he was doing in bowing the knee to the Father. He knew exactly what he's doing. Second point, the location of Daniel's prayer. He goes home. He knew that those guys would be looking for him to see if he would pray. And so the question I got to ask in my head, I'm thinking, Daniel, why don't you just go to the woods? Go to the woods and pray. Go into a cave, crawl into a hole. You can still spend time with God there. Get out of your house. They will be waiting for you there, Daniel. You have so much to lose. Why are you in your stinking house? Get in the woods. And what does he do? He's in his house. He doesn't care. His allegiance, his loyalty is to God and God alone. He was in his house knowing that they would be there waiting for him. Second point. Now my third point. He prays with the windows open. Listen now. He went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, 
he knelt down on his knees. Windows open. So if you can't hear me, you will see me. My windows are coming open today. I'm on my knees and I'm praying. You're going to see me. And I'm doing this as a direct defiance against the law. I absolutely love this. Because I thought of this. I got two little quick illustrations. The first one is this. When we go out to eat as Christians, it is so awkward to see the faces sometimes when it's like, all right, food's coming. Okay, who wants to pray? You notice whoever asks who wants to pray, they always turn their head. Who wants to pray? You got it? Okay, okay, cool, cool. And so they pray. And it's like really short. It's like, Father, thank you so much for this food, Lord, and just for the message. God, it was great. Thank you. Bless this food. Amen. You can't hear him. I'm like, man, stand up and pray. In fact, if we go out to eat, out tonight to eat, we're going to stand up and we're going to pray. All right? Especially when we got large groups. Everyone's like, you've got to cut it up in chunks and pray for this side. We'll pray. No. Who cares? Just be, just be open about it. Who cares what they think? Because it's either too soft or it's too fast. It's like rub it up, dub. Thanks for the grub. Amen. Let's start eating. Stand up and pray. Who cares? And the second illustration, this is why I was so convicting. Uh, we were at Victoria Gardens last week, or no, maybe two weeks ago, and I just got out of a Bible study. I was with Don, and we were meeting up our friend Ryan Ronaldo. Uh, he's a good brother at the church, and he was at Borders there at the Victoria Gardens, and he was witnessing to a Muslim girl. So we met him up, and we were chatting to see how it's going, and we're carrying our Bibles now. We got a resolution, and that's to carry our Bibles wherever we go and just see what happens. And so this dude is just sitting at a desk. He's doing his work and whatnot, and he notices we got our Bibles, and he can't resist, so he just starts talking to us. And, you know, the conversation runs long. He, he starts pouring out his heart. He's struggling with this. He's struggling in his marriage. He's trying to get a job. And he's an older guy. He's like, but I got my Bible. It's in the car, and my daughter's got hers. And he's just so excited to see young men carrying their Bibles, you know, talking about the Lord so openly. And, uh, you know, he starts laying out some serious things. And I'm thinking, man, we need to pray. We need to pray for him. And I'm like, ah, not in here. And so Donovan, brothers, let's pray for him. I'm like, oh. All right, we'll pray. And so Donovan leads the prayer, and I'm just thinking, oh, that sounds so good. Thank you, Don, for praying. But I was convicted. Like, why can't you simply pray? Who cares if you're an open? Just pray. I was concerned about the dude who was staring at us the whole time because we were being too loud in the coffee shop. Forget it. We're not looking to be prideful or pharisaical in any kind of way. We just want to pray for our brother. And Daniel was being obedient to God. All he wanted to do was pray. He knew exactly what he's doing. Those windows were open. That's the third point. Fourth point. Notice now he says, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day. Now the question for you, Daniel, why can't you just get it over with in the morning? Do it once at 3, 4 a.m. No one will see you. Just pray. You'll have your communion with God. It'll be great. Why is it, though, that you do it three times a day? They're bound to find you, Daniel. They're bound to see you. Yet he remains faithful. He said in his heart, I'm going to pray three times a day to my God. That's what he does. Again, in complete defiance with the law because he was being obedient to God. That's the fourth point. Fifth one, we're moving through this. Daniel was specific in his prayer. Look now, it said, uh, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. He's specific in the things that he said. No one could argue out of that. No one could say, well, you don't know if he was praying to Yahweh. He could have been praying to somebody. No. He says he was praying and giving thanks to his God. We don't pray in generalities. 
We're specific. We address Yahweh. We address the king of the universe. The God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. That is who you go before. That's who we pray to. There's no argument there. When we pray as a family, they better know we're praying to Yahweh, the God of Scripture, Jesus. That's who we're praying to. And he was specific. There was no way around that. The people who caught him, they knew exactly who he was addressing, and he did it purposefully. And last and final point on this verse was the last part. He says, prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He said in his mind and in his heart, I'm going to pray to God this way. And just because what the world says now, it will not dictate my prayer life. And that's the question I was thinking. Does the way the world operate dictate the way I pray? Has it challenged and forced me to pray in a different way, to force prayer in the car, force prayer in the shower? Or what I've set in my heart, do I maintain that regardless of what the world says or regardless of what the world demands of me? Have you remained faithful to the things that you've said? Now, I'm not attempting to be legalistic, but if you've said it in your heart to pray a certain way, do it. Who cares what the world thinks? He did it as it was customary to early in his days. He'd been doing it since the beginning. He wasn't going to stop now, even if it meant his life, which it did. And so what are the implications of this verse alone, verse 10? What are the implications of our lives? It's serious. The first one is this. Personal prayer is a public testimony to your faith in Christ. Personal prayer is a public testimony to your faith in Christ. Let me illustrate what this means. Nowhere in Scripture do we find a verse that says you have to pray three times a day and you have to do it in your house. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. But yet it's your decision to do so. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you need to go and witness to the lady who's walking into the abortion clinic right now because she's about to abort her baby. Nowhere does it say in Scripture that you need to go up to San Francisco and plant a church and be a witness and be a light to the homosexual community. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that you have to vote for the conservative candidate. You you know what it does teach, though? It tells us God's truth. It gives us his revelation. So it's the meditation of the truths that are coming out of Scripture, us thinking about them and saying, all right, God, as Daniel did, God, what do you think about this? Because I'm going to have to give an account to you. You are my judge. So according to what Scripture teaches... And what you think, how should I respond to the moral issues that I face every day? And so if your prayer life is short, then you're not able to do that. But when you're being led in prayer concerning the things of God that's found in his word, you're led to go up to San Francisco and start a church. You're led to go witness to the ladies at the abortionist clinic. You're led to vote for the man who's going to stand for godly principles according to the Constitution. You're going to be led to do these things. Because the truths in Scripture have hit you in such a way that you don't know what else to do in prayer. And that's what prayer is. It's the revelation of God's will in your life according to what he has said in his word. That's prayer. And that's what it is. And to give you a great example from history, it was a saint, Telemachus. Jay, did I get it right? Telemachus. Dang it, man, I've been trying to say that all day. Saint Telemachus. He was a saint from the 5th century A.D., And he was from uh, Central Asia. Is that correct? Central Asia. He was a monk, Christian monk. And he felt led to go to Rome for some reason. He didn't know why he was led to go to Rome, but he was led to go to Rome. So he goes there. And upon arriving there, he sees the massive crowds going into the Roman Colosseum. So he investigates. He sees what's going on. 
You and I know what takes place at Roman Colosseum. See what he witnesses gladiators fighting to the death. And that's what we know. They were slaves. They were compelled and most of the time forced to go in there and kill each other. And so he's horrified by what he's seen. So what does he do? He goes in there and he stands in the middle of the fight. And he pleads with them to stop. He says, it's shame. It's shame. In the name of Christ, I forbid you to do these things. And so one of the gladiators takes their sword and stabs him to death. And he falls and dies there in the center of the Colosseum in front of all these people. And you know what the response is? One by one, the Colosseum empties. You want to know why? Because they were ashamed at what they were doing. In fact, after that, the emperor made it a law that no more fighting would take place there. The emperor at that time. Nowhere in scripture was that saint told to go to Rome and to do that. It was through prayer. He was led by God there. And that was his testimony. Gave his life right there. Emptied the Colosseum. Family, that's what it looks like. Personal prayer is a public testimony to your faith in Christ. And the second question I thought really hurt because I didn't want to come here and tell you this if I wasn't ready to stand by it by myself. And it's this. If a decree was made today that you can no longer pray pray, or make a petition to God or you would die, what would you do? How many Christians, how many Christians would get up and walk out of this coffee shop? How many of us? Because Daniel knew exactly what would happen if he remained faithful to God. So how many of us are willing to die right now if we petition to God in our prayers? How many of us? I was just stuck on this passage. Am I ready to go out right now? Am I ready to die because I want to pray to God? If he came in here right now, put your Bibles away. No more Bible study, no more prayer, no more worship in the name of God. Would we come together as a family and begin to pray knowing that it would be the end of our lives? Or would we walk out and find something else to do? And I can only think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1. To live is Christ and to die is what? Those aren't throwaway words, family. Those are serious. Paul is dead serious when he says to die is gain. Why? Because his treasure was not on this earth but in heaven. He was dead serious about that. And I just think about that. Man, if a decree came out, would we be willing to go in the den of lions so that we can continue to make our petitions to God? My goodness. Daniel did it in a heartbeat. He didn't care. And so look what happens. Follow me in verse 11. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And so they caught him doing it. Verse 12, they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, this thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. They caught him. Look at the king's response there. When he heard these things, verse 14, he was greatly displeased within himself, within himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. The king knew exactly what had happened at that point. His best man, his treasured governor, the one who he was about to elect, was going to be cast into the den of lions. 
Let's continue on. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Look, buddy, you made it. You signed it. You agreed to it. And now your boy's going in the den. And you can't do anything about it. The king knows this now. Verse 16. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Listen now. There's nothing he can do. So this is what he says. Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. God wants everyone to know, including the world, that it's only him and him alone who can save or can deliver anybody from the persecutions that they're going through or the trials that they're going through. This king did everything he could, and there's nothing that he can do. Final verse now. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So they signed it, they rolled the stone, and then they engraved it with their rings, basically saying that the kings had done this. Nobody is to remove this seal. Nobody is to break this seal, some of the envelope. When the king sealed it, it was not to be opened or broken by anybody else but the king or if the king had given them permission. So that's the mark that's being made here on this rock. So they throw this in, they throw them in this pit. And it's not really like a cave or a den per se. It's more of like, like I just said, it's a massive pit. It's dug deep in the ground. There's two sides divided by a big, massive wall. One side of the lions, the hungry lions. The other side is the food. But what happens is they don't feed them. Why? Because they will starve. They keep them hungry so that when they throw someone in there, they're quickly devoured. And so that what ha- that's what exactly what happens. They throw them in. The king is upset. But the story doesn't end. Verse 18, now the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. He's so frustrated and anxious, he doesn't want food. And no musicians were brought before him. Also, his sleep went from him. He's fasting. He doesn't want entertainment. He can't even sleep. He is so frustrated and burdened over this issue. Notice before that he said, your God will deliver you. And now he's kind of freaking out a little bit. He's wigging out. He realizes the the reality of the fact that Daniel's in a den of lions for the night. And maybe he's not so sure that God will deliver him. Let's keep reading verse 18. Now the king went to his palace. I'm sorry, verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? See, before he was confident that it would happen. He realizes what it is, and now he's not so sure. Now he's asking the question. He's wondering if Daniel's even going to give him a response, and if he'll be delivered. And I love Daniel right here, so calm. He said to the king, O king, live forever. My God, verse 22, my God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. God delivers him. God brings him out of the den. God rescues him. And so I was thinking about this because I know this truth. The most important thing to God, the thing that he's concerned with most is his glory. So everything that happens on this earth is for the purpose of him being glorified. And so I ask the question, 
Did it have to be the den of lions? Couldn't you just get him out some other way? Couldn't you convince King Darius that he could have written a different law and he could have gotten him out and he wouldn't have to go on through this? We still would have praised you, God. We still would have given you glory if you would have just delivered him that way. But think about the severity of going into the den of lions. We make that much more of our God because he, deliver us, he delivers, us, delivers us from much greater tribulations. That's it right there. God is seen more beautifully, more magnificent when he's able to deliver people from the pit of hell, basically. And that's seen in salvation because we all deserve it. And he delivers us. He delivers us. I can't even say that word right now. Delivers us. He saves us. He's magnified that much more. You make a big deal about God because he's done a serious thing. He's delivered you from the den of lions. That's what he's done. Look at verse 24, though. It's kind of a shocker. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they even came to the bottom of the den. Lions were so hungry, they didn't get to eat Daniel. The angels came in, shut their mouths, so they're hungry. So what do they throw in? Their families, themselves, and their children? Are you kidding me? God, is that kind of harsh? Is all that necessary? That's a lot. I mean, the, the kids? Think about this, though. Back in Exodus, Pharaoh decreed that what? All the firstborn of the Jewish boys would be killed. And so what is the last sign that God gives in Egypt? The death of the firstborn. Those who don't wipe the blood over the door, you are not under. So the angel of death comes, and what does he do? He takes out the firstborn, including Pharaoh's son. When Pharaoh demanded that they be drowned, that they drown the firstborn, Moses was drifted down the river. He survived by God's grace. What does God decide to do? Moses raises his staff. The seas part. They walk through. The armies of Pharaoh walk through, and they drowned. They're at the bottom of the Red Sea right now. Not God's people. Romans 12 is very clear. God is very clear. Very clear. Vengeance belongs to me, he says. He will repay evil with justice and righteousness. That's what he said in his word. Let's finish this up. I love the response of Darius. Look at here now, verse 25. To all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. And his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Rhetorical question. The answer is God. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The uncompromising and faithful life of Daniel was such an influence that even Darius himself turned and recognized God for who he is. Your kingdom is forever. Your dominion will not end. You are the true and the living God. And I just love that. The brother who came up and gave a devotion, I hate to boast in him, but growing up in a Christian school, the Christian friends I had weren't Christians at all. Neither was I. And so when he became a Christian, man, he would make statements in front of all our friends that would just convict us. And the only word that you can say was awkward. That was about it. Just an awkward silence in the room. He would make... I can remember situations 
I won't even have to mention him, but he would stand for Christ. He would stand for righteousness. And it was seeing the uncompromised life of my friend Donovan that I was really compelled to follow after Christ. I had seen a genuine conversion for the first time because he was the last guy on earth I would have expected to become a Christian. He was at the public school. I was at the Goody Good Choose Woodcrest Christian School. And so it was his uncompromising life and his faithfulness to God and his boldness to stand for truth that God used to open my eyes. And he'll never boast in that, but I will. I'm thankful for God for it. God gets the glory for that. But notice here what Darius says. Verse 26, I make a decree. Notice in the beginning, he also made a decree. His first decree was putting himself on the throne. I will be the only man or God that you will petition to. He himself took the seat of God, and now after this entire extravaganza, he gets off the throne, and he gives it back to God in his second decree. And he says, you will worship God. You will fear and tremble God. You will fear and tremble the living God, the true God. That's his statement. He changes. He recognizes who deserves the throne. And I open this message by talking about Daniel and the progression of his book. That is what God is saying this entire time, is that there is only one who is worthy to sit on the throne. One deserves headship. There is one who deserves lordship. Not Saul, the first king, not David, even the godly man. None of these pagan kings, none of the pagan rulers that we see even deserve it today. One gets the throne, and Daniel ends his book by explaining who that is. And that is the Messiah. That is the Lord. That is our Christ. That is our king. He is the one who deserves to sit on the throne. Why? Because he is God. He has given us salvation. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems. It is his name we proclaim. And so Daniel's obedience to God was clear defiance to the world. He would not budge in his prayer life. He was so focused and disciplined. And that is the exhortation to you guys. Be focused and disciplined in your prayer life. Know that your obedience to God will cost you something. Jesus says, whoever wants to follow after me, you pick up your cross. Meaning you go through the trials and you're obedient even to death. Like Daniel was. And God will deliver you. Now I'm not saying he delivers everyone. You think of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, what happened to him? Stoned. Stoned. But God's deliverance is eternal. Colossians 3 tells us our life is hidden in Christ. So what God has given, no man can take away. And that is eternal life, and that is what Christ promises. And that's what we hold on to. Last night I had a dear brother preach Acts chapter 7, and he asked a question that I've never heard anybody ask. He said, how do you want to fall asleep? This man is in here tonight. He's a great teacher. You'll be hearing him soon. And he asked the question, how do you want to fall asleep? Because it says there in Acts chapter 7, Stephen fell asleep, meaning he had died. And I just thought, man, I want to fall asleep doing something crazy for God on the pulpit. I don't care. I'll drop. Let me do it. That's how I want to fall asleep. I want to fall asleep serving God, regardless of the cost. And that's not easy to say, because I almost just avoided it. But I'm at that point. I'm... My treasure's in heaven. My faith is in Christ. I want to see his church get sanctified. I want to see people come to faith. That's my desire. And that should be ours. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.